Hi, and thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study, the podcast where we reconnect to the deep roots of resistance and liberation biblical texts offer. I'm your host, Alex Patchen McNeil. On this podcast, we feature conversation partners who bring an intersection of identities as LGBTQIA plus folks, people of color, activists, theologians, and pastors. We hope you find a space of spiritual nourishment here to fuel your well of resilience. Let's get to it. Hey, y'all, this is Alex. Welcome to season two. For today's episode, I am so excited to have with me Reverend John Russell Stinger, who is a therapist in Louisville. And today we're going to be reading Psalm 51 verses 1 through 17 through the theme of shame. John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Alex. I'm thrilled to be here. We have a long history of getting to do these kind of fun little interactions. So I'm excited to do it here at Liberation Bible Study. But I wanted to get into some deeper introductions. And it's been the practice on this show to introduce ourselves, who we are, our pronouns, our work, and our identities. Because we know that our identities and what we do in the world always show up whenever we are engaging with biblical texts. So, John, if you'd be so kind as to kick it off. Yeah, uh, my pronouns are he and him. I am a currently 32-year-old white cis gay man, demographics. I live in Louisville, Kentucky, but I'm from a cattle ranch in Texas and have ministered, pastored a church for the last three years in rural Kentucky while building a private practice as a therapist. Did some work before that, connecting queer people to the church and healing resources and connecting the church to um, their better selves <laughs> and their ability to welcome and celebrate and affirm and recognize the gifts of queer people. So, yeah. Well, as y'all know, I am Alex McNeil and my pronouns are he and him. And my some of my identities are as a white transgender man born and raised and now back living in the South. Uh, the work that I get to do on the daily is with More Light Presbyterians as their executive director, doing as John um, has in his past, help, helping churches be their best selves and helping queer folks find places where they can uh, be in sanctuary, where they can be in community um, with folks who not just welcome, but celebrate their identities and their uh, belovedness by God. And so that's the sacred work that I get to do every day. And to me, this podcast is one way of reclaiming and rereading biblical texts that have so often been used against queer and trans folks, um, not necessarily the specific passages themselves, but even the idea of two queer folks sitting down and reading the Bible together is an act of resistance to me. And so I'm excited to have John with me in that, in that practice today. For Liberation Bible Study, uh, we read the passage three times using a format called Lectio Divina, but with a twist. And we ask three different questions as we go. And the first question that we're going to notice and, and hold as we read the passage through the first time is really about what's going on in this passage. What is the context? And also paying attention to what speaks to us um, as we read it through the first time. It's always interesting to see what jumps out that may have never jumped out at you before. Um, not to scare you, but <laughs> to grab you and, with resonance. So 
for the first read through, John, I'd be honored if you would read it for the first time. Great. So this is Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being, therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I'm curious, as you read it through this time, how would you label the context of the passage and what stuck out to you about it? How would I label the context of the passage? That's a good question. (laughs) I mean, traditionally, I know we say these are put into David's mouth, but we also know that that's not really true (laughs) when it comes to the Psalms. So maybe it's a people in exile, certainly someone in pain, and kind of wanting to be drawn closer to God and doing a lot of verbal self-flagellation in the process of that. It was fascinating. This was the first time I'd read it out loud. I'd read it before we got together, but hearing things like white as snow, which is racially highly unhelpful, um, and different phrases, just really, when you read it out loud, it takes on a different, it takes on a lot more life i guess so yeah the themes of the theme of sin and transgressions and being and it being somehow inevitable being born into it and then trying to get at the end of the passage trying to understand well kind of what is my human role in this healing or moving away from sin if it's not a burnt offering you know what is it if it's not a sacrifice it sounds like someone wrestling with the theology <laughs> they've been given maybe around this. Yeah, kind of what they'd received as a theology mm-hmm. of how you how you appease God, how you go to God versus what their experience has been maybe. I did a very 
tiny look at some of the commentary on the passage. And I think that's really interesting because in the first verse, the terms that that are written in Hebrew are two different um, understandings of God's relationship to humans. When the psalmist writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, that's hesed, the kind of sense of covenantal love, like God entering a contract with Israel following the time in the desert and, and pledging to be faithful to Israel. And then the next, very next line says, according to your abundant mercy, is raham, the womb love, or like the love of a mother, which I think is such an interesting juxtaposition. One, like you're supposed to love me, and one, it's like we have a deep connection from the womb. You love me with a depth that no one else can. I hadn't really noticed the kind of wrestling in the way that you pulled it out, but I think that 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 beginning kind of speaks to that. How do I actually experience God? Because I think a lot of us are taught about the contractual love of God. Like, if you do right, God loves you. I love that. I'm glad that you looked at commentaries. Um, (laughs) You describing those two terms, I have the image of like an arranged marriage versus what some cultures would call like a love marriage and two completely valid ways of doing relationship. Um, And Israel having this kind of arranged contractual, meaningful, deep relationship, but that's really rooted in this sense of, yeah, covenant um, and starting from a place of covenant, whereas a womb love, like you said, is a different, maybe more emotional place. So yeah, this person being caught in that, that's fascinating. I think what, what really strikes me about this psalm, and you're right, it, you know, to identify it is like the, one of the main features of religious life for Israel was around the temple and going to the temple to do a a sacrifice. That's how you were forgiven. And so when the temple is destroyed, you know, the post-exile, they're pushed out. How in the world do we worship? How in the world do we know God loves us and forgives us? Like, I think that I read this psalm as like from the depth of brokenness (laughs) that you're wrestling because you're so desperate to feel God's closeness to feel forgiven in the sense that like you're carrying, I mean, to our theme of shame, like there's a depth of like shame within this passage to me that's very burdensome. And I think causes that kind of internal wrestling. I couldn't help but read this passage and think about folks who are queer and trans and faith communities, particularly what you were saying earlier, John, about like the inherited tradition, like what people have told you you're supposed to feel about your sexuality or gender identity um, and how God understands those things, particularly in more conservative traditions. That wrestling of like, wait, but I know I'm loved, but I'm being told this one thing. And that like the, the amount of kind of shame that you can even carry for even asking the question from some traditions where you're told not to. Yeah. Hearing you say that, I, I remember when I was reading it, I was really struck by this language uh, in verse five of, indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. And so there's a lot there. (laughs) But what it made me think of as a queer person is how we're all born into this cishet compulsory heterosexual sexuality world. So in a way, we're born into a broken 
world. We're born into a broken system. Mm. And so how many of us as queer people have tried to make ourselves into burnt offerings, have tried to do everything we can to sacrifice ourselves, thinking that that's what God wants because that's what we've been told that God wants. That's conversion therapy. And I don't just mean conversion therapy in the systematic sense of sitting before a false therapist (laughs) and undergoing a process, but I mean the process we're all subjected to by being in traditional religious environments where we're told that being cisgender or straight is the only valid option. And so the conversion therapy we put ourselves through in our brains is us making ourselves into burnt offerings, thinking that that is what will save us. And I know for me, it was actually getting to seminary and learning the most pivotal moment I had in all of my like theological education was learning about a feminist definition of sin as being self-deprecation or self-denial rather than a kind of traditional male interpretation of sin being pride and kind of thinking that you're God. And feminist said, no, actually, her name was Valerie Savings, who I read at the time and was taught by my professor that the corrective was that no, women, and I think other, other people also, including myself, self-denial is the primary way that we deny that we are children of God. It's not by being bigger (laughs) than we are, but by being smaller and being that burnt offering. And so that healing looks like something else when that's your starting point. Yeah. And I think all of that, that self-denial, I think leads to shame so, so much. Mm -hmm. Because I think that there's this tension around self-denial and shame where you know that you're more or you could be more, and you're called to more, and yet either you're sensing the limits that 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 has been placed on that, either from yourself or from your external world. I mean, my shame spirals always start with, I could be doing something and I'm not. Um, I could be taking better care of myself and I'm not. I could be living out the identity I'm called to be, but I'm not. There's some real barriers to living as you're called to be at in your gender and sexuality. And so I don't want to minimize that, that are external. But I think one of the, the barriers is that, that sense of shame within yourself. Before we move to the next reading, one of the last things that struck me that I want to hold up for us to think about is actually the uh, verse 17 where the very last one, the psalmist says, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And I really wrestled with that, kind of reading it before we got on today. And then when you read it again, I I was, it's funny, I hadn't noticed the psalm had ended or the reading had ended. <laughs> I was still like waiting for the next line almost um, when you were reading um, because I, you know, it isn't the exact end of the psalm. There's a couple more verses, but what I finally have kind of realized is that there's something about like, what is the liberative power of the shame or, or marginalization we've experienced And I think it's this piece around a broken heart, like understanding other people's brokenness. From my own place of brokenness, I can understand the brokenness of others. And that 
actually like allows for empathy and and forgiveness interpersonally and healing and I think that our sacrifice to God is, yeah, not thinking we're God, not denying ourselves, but also recognizing that we're always in this tension. I think like liberation is about trying to live as fully as we're called to be. Yeah, and I have some feelings about that idea of contrition. <laughs> I don't know if we wait until the next reading to go into that. Let's pause it, read it, and then we can, I think resistance and contrition could be an interesting um, thing. For the second reading, we want to look at how does this text call us to resistance? And resistance is a word that can be interpreted a couple of ways. Typically, I interpret it as like resistance to the empire or status quo. But also, I think sometimes first we have to notice what is the resistance within ourselves. And so maybe contrition will come back in Mm -hmm. with that. I'm happy to read it through the second time. Let's reground ourselves into hearing the words from the psalmist. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give you a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And now we think about how this text calls us to resistance. John, do you want to start with your contrite heart? (laughs) Yes, this is how my heart is contrite. No. Um... (laughs) What I, what I was, I mean, hopefully there's some contrition there. No. Um, what I was thinking about and hearing it on the second reading, thinking about even more is the grief that we go through when we shift from the systems that we've been given, the status quo, this is patriarchy, you know, the crap of it all. <laughs> Um, when we shift from that into a more liberative way of being, 
which is part of what I consider drawing closer to God. And I think what I'm reading into this psalmist being caught between. There's grief there, though. Like, I think about the work I've done as a therapist with trans and queer people who are coming out later in life and and have different kind of ramifications, like for their, you know, immediate family, if they're maybe married or have children or, and not even that, the, when you're maybe in what you would consider the last third of your life and you suddenly realize that maybe you've been making a burnt offering of yourself for the first two thirds, there's a lot of grief there. And so if contrition is then repenting of that in the sense of turning back, turning around, turning towards God, repentance being, I'm not going to do that to myself anymore. You know, I Googled the definition of contrition because it's the kind of word that I think we only hear in context like this. And this is what came up, feeling or expressing remorse or penitence affected by guilt. That's a real part of coming out for a lot of people. And it's not bad. It's not and I think maybe we have shame around our shame. <laughs> we have shame around feeling guilty. But when you really reckon with maybe what you've done to yourself and others, you know, when we're oppressed, we oppress others. And and so when you really reckon with that, I think guilt is a real part of kind of taking account of what the world has done to you, done to others, what you've done to yourself, what you've done to others. And so no, we don't want to hang on to that guilt. That's part of moving past the contrition into something else. It's hard to skip that step. I think if you skip that step, you carry your shame with you. But I also say all of that knowing that being told to repent for queer people is just so often about repenting of their queerness, not our attempts to straighten ourselves out. Yeah, I can't underline that point enough. And it's not even about blaming folks who've tried for years to straighten themselves out. The blame lies in the system. The judgment is in the system that forced that choice. You know, I, I think the, the, that kind of contrition, that, that guilt, I also see it in, in parents and pastors who have finally realized that God loves, celebrates, welcomes rejoices in LGBTQIA identities and realizing the number of years that they may have caused pain to their child who is now openly LGBT or the church context in which they've caused pain. You know, I think I, a lot of times in my work at More Light, uh, we go to conferences and we set up our little booth and folks come up and get pronoun buttons and resources, but more often than not, I kind of want to put out the little shingle that Lucy has in Charlie Brown that's like the doctor is in. Because one person literally said to me uh, a few weeks ago, like, I want to have a therapy session with you. Now, I'm not a trained licensed therapist like John is. But what I find a lot of time is folks coming up to me for kind of confessing what they've done <laughs> within their scope as allies or, or along a journey around acceptance of LGBTQ folks want to be like free of that guilt or like to, to know that it's okay in some ways 
I find myself in conversations where I'm really hearing the depth of people's contrition, the depth of people's kind of sadness that they can't really share with their kid or their church in the same way. Um, And yet the freedom that comes when, when I get to point out to them all the amazing things they're doing now and to say that doesn't change what happened in the past, but look at you like really living differently than you were and the healing that can come from that. Knowing that God, it's God that does the healing. It's not me, but to just be a witness to it can be a really powerful act of that turning around repentance in the sense of, I want to make a change. And what you're able, the kind of space that you're creating there, it sounds like is a space where they can bring that shame into the light a little bit which is what I believe heals shame is, is removing the power it has in corners that we put it in and the secrecy we bind it in. And so bringing it kind of out into the open is what for a lot of us is healing. If you've ever done something that you truly, truly regretted, which I hope we all have, <laughs> you know, and had that experience of a real authentic, vulnerable reconciliation where we healed with another person and really were able to express our regret and guilt and know how powerful that is. I think it's really good, especially for institutions like churches, (laughs) to not skip over that into the, we celebrate everyone and we affirm everyone. Well, first of all, no, you probably don't because it takes a lot of work to get there. And it Part of that work is contrition. Part of that work is healing from the things that we've done to dehumanize ourselves and others. Which I think goes to the next, the earlier part of broken heart. You can kind of tell the places or the people who give lip service to sin, but don't identify themselves as having been a transgressor or as having anything to feel shame about and how bland and, I don't know, surface level, I think sometimes those claims can, can be once you've done the work to identify your own contrition, your own shame, and like bring it into the light to say, actually, like, I don't need to feel shame about this as much anymore. And I know that God or my community forgives me. Because I think that what this psalm is trying to say is that, I love verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Because once you know that God isn't going to kill you for your transgressions, how easy is it then to bring others to that place of like, we don't have to, it's a community removal of the depth of shame. Yeah, and what you were just saying a little bit before about recognizing how we've transgressed. It makes me think of how painful that can be within, you know, the LGBTQ movement within queer communities, like where say a cis white gay person feels liberated. And so, and so they're done and, and there's no anti-racism piece. There's no sense that trans people's experiences can be much different. And so I'm realizing is like a lifelong process of, 
okay, well, this is where I've gotten to. Well, how do I still draw closer to God? How do I still let my heart be broken? Like, oh my gosh. So in the High Women song, The High Women, the verse about the woman who's a preacher, the first line after she says, I was a preacher, is my heart broke for all the world. Like that's the descriptor of what that means to, you know, to be a proclaimer, to be this person, you know, in verse 13, who's teaching transgressors your ways, a broken heart is a way, is a moral compass. It's a way of connecting to the pain in the world and the pain within you and being able to use that. Like I know for myself, it's, it's when I find that happening within me that I know okay, this is the kind of thing that I could have the energy to invest in trying to work for liberation there. This is something that affects me in a way that maybe I could be a part of liberation in a sustainable way, we all hope. (laughs) Don't numb that part of yourself. As soon as I say that, I think, and you don't have to stay there, but part of being human is that ability to empathize and to have your heart be broken by the world and then know that that means somewhere within you is God whispering, things can be different, things are different, we can make that happen, join with me. I'm glad you brought up the high women, because when I was reading this, I was drawn to a, a different Brandy Carlisle song, Firewatcher's Daughter album, the song, The Things That I Regret. She has a line that says, for a heart that is broken makes a beautiful sound. Mm, okay, can we just put Brandy think... on this podcast? I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brandy, call in right now. Uh, number is, <laughs> we love you. I think that there's something in what you're saying about the prior song and this one that's linked around, there's beauty in when you can work from that place of empathy and understanding around the ways the world can break all of our hearts, around the healing that can happen when you've had a broken heart. I think it's a, it's, it's a song that calls out to others and really helps build a community that kind of seeks outward rather than like thinks they have the answers fixed, solved, we've, we've got it all, and then gets very insular about that. Just to answer the question for this reading around how the text calls us to resistance, and I think we have been, but I just want to underline it. I want to resist paving over that pain my shame or my brokenness, my transgressions, and saying, all right, I'm, I'm healed now, and not recognizing the well of compassion, empathy, and justice that comes from being in touch with my broken heart. I really resonate with that. And I know you and I have had personal conversations, not on a podcast, <laughs> where I've shared with you before some of how I realize that I have kind of, for the sake of the church at times really presented an honest version of my story, but a version that had edited out the pain along the way of kind of getting to where I was, especially as a minister. And I think a lot of us learn putting people at ease, being likable. I think it's something we use as queer people to kind of disarm the people around us so that we feel a little safer because if we're liked, then maybe we won't be assaulted. And so getting, kind of continuing to go back to that place where we 
our, our full selves, which includes pain. And that is, I mean, that's a huge resistance because the church gets tired of hearing us complain about how crappy the church can be, especially once they've gone through a welcoming process. Why are we complaining to that? Like, now we can all be joyful and the rainbow is so pretty and bright. And can't we, you know, I'm not saying this happens explicitly, although I'm sure it does, but I think there is a lot of implicit pressure to kind of, okay, like, oh, you're out. That's great. I remember, you know, when, when I came up to my parents, one of the things that we did that weekend is I was honest with them for the first time about what my childhood was actually like and how much anxiety and kind of pain I just lived in. It was really painful, I think, for them to hear that for the first time. But that that was part of the process. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, because in in the tendency to want to pave over the, the past and say, well, it's all rainbows now. I think some of that instinct comes from, you know, if you're telling me a story, I mean, even with your parents, you're telling me a story, you're telling me about your, the pain of your childhood. That then sparks in your parents a reflection of like, oh, crap, what did I do to ignore that pain minimally or even cause it? And, and so it's like your pain puts me in pain, sometimes out of empathy, sometimes out of self-reflection. And I think that, you know, even in, within the LGBT community, QIA community, when there's, I think, one community that feels more liberated and done <laughs> in terms of the, the justice that they've received, it's really interesting how some of the like horizontal oppression or violence comes around, particularly if it's gay men to trans women, let's just say. I see that a lot and historically. I think the place of violence comes, or, or like ignoring their even basic needs, demands, requests, is from the site of pain around what some gay men have experienced around their gender identity as kids and being called out and bullied for being feminized and for trans women to be living from that place can be very triggering for an unexamined site of shame or pain. Right, because gay boys, and I guess bi boys as well, when you're like, pubescent you're being bullied because of how you're transgressing gender not because of sexual attraction and so yeah, when yeah. you haven't when you haven't acknowledged that pain in your healing process as a gay cis gay man then yeah Whew. i also was thinking when you were talking about the pain that sharing your pain can cause like it took me back to the broken heart the broken spirit piece And I was thinking, yeah, my parents needed to have their hearts broken. Like that's how they needed to, that's how they were able to understand my experience in a deeper way. I can take a leap from there. Thinking about the violence that's reported in the news around killing, especially black trans women and trans women of color more broadly. Thinking that for me, like part of my practice is opening up my heart to be broken again and again and not being numb to, to that because that's something that I feel I have a responsibility to not move past. I understand why people who are closer to those identities might need to protect themselves more from that kind of news. But for me, there's like a responsibility to continue to be affected so that I can 
hopefully the openings to affect change to prevent that and not and not just kind of absorb it as a reality in some ways. We live in a world where our hearts are constantly breaking right now. Mm-hmm. And that instinct to numb out for those of us who experience a certain degree of privilege is very, very real. And I think that is empire in our hearts to turn a blind eye to the brokenness and oppression of others and pretend like, well, why can't we all just get along? Why can't we all just stop complaining (laughs) to your point? And just to, to reflect a little on the healing that comes when you've had your heart broken. I just remember watching your parents, John, at screenings of out of order documentary around LGBTQ folks who going through the ordination process. John and I are both in that documentary and John and my parents are both in that documentary. It was amazing whenever they got to be at a screening, the number of queer and trans um, adults, kids, youth, who would go up to your parents and just like the amount of empathy and love they got to share with those folks for just a minute was healing. The degree to which their hearts broke in your coming out of the experience you had as a youth gave them the depth of love they could share with others. I think we're reclaiming having our hearts broken as something that makes us deeply human. That's exhausting, though. Like, even as I say that, I'm like, oh, but do we, do we have to do that? And I think on, like, a kind of global, on a global, national, but I think even more so global scale, like, I get really overwhelmed by that. I mean, basically, like, Greta Thunberg is just saying, like, our hearts, like, an entire generation's hearts are being broken and she continues to tell everyone that and literally nothing changes. And so like it is a, I think the fear is that we get stuck there. And for some people they do. I don't say it lightly. And I know what it looks like when a person comes into my office and has numbed themselves so completely that they can't, and you can't numb my kind of biases that by numbing any emotion, you're numbing all of them at least a little bit you're kind of retracting your ability to be an expansive person. The danger of numbing our broken hearts is then numbing the anger that propels us to work for justice. It's numbing our ability to love, our ability to experience joy. And I feel for, I, as I say this, yeah, I just constantly hear the other voice in my head that thinks, yeah, but some people are really seeking liberation from a heart that seems stuck and not unable to to repair itself anymore because it has been too much. I so resonate with what you're saying. And maybe this is our moment to move to the liberation piece. Um, I think holding resistance as not paving over our broken hearts. And let's see what wisdom there is in the passage for a vision of liberation. John, do you want to read again, or would you like me to? Okay. This is Psalm 51, verses 1 through 17. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, 
blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being, therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What vision for the work of liberation did you find in this reading? I was very struck by verses 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart. Put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. And I just, I thought this is, for Christians, this is what, this is where resurrection matters and that resurrection isn't something that God does once in some big way, but it's something that we are promised and that can happen in our lives, that we can be restored when we think that death is the end, when we think exhaustion, when we think our broken hearts are the end, that that is never the end of the story. And so that we, Christian hope is, even when that appears to be truly the end of the story, you know, that, that something else can happen, that we can be restored, that we can be given a new spirit, that we can experience joy again and gladness and sustain in us a willing spirit. Yeah, an image of the Grinch <laughs> um, came to me um, around, you know, when the Grinch is still Christmas, his heart breaks before it grows three sizes. You know, he realizes how he's stolen gifts and, and yet Christmas goes on and, and kind of feels love for these people. And I think that that's the trust that I want to place in my broken heart, that it's breaking to get bigger. And I think from that comes joy, comes connection, and that restoration and, and sustenance in the verses that you read just now. You know, if my heart breaks for a new thing that I hadn't realized it could break for, I find from that place that willingness to work, that willingness to try and fix something, but also meeting people alongside that cause or in that work is a place of joy. And I think it's interesting that that, that this like mini prayer around creating me a clean heart 
all comes before, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I think there's something that goes from the like personal to the communal. My heart is broken. I receive joy. And then I go and do something as a result of that. And I think that's to me what perpetuates the cycle of brokenness, restoration, joy, and justice. Yeah, and hearing you talk, I, I'm also thinking about how, I mean, this, this is going to be a personal bias. I think it's incredibly destructive when the church tells people that pain and suffering are good things. And I'm thinking about how having a broken heart, having trauma, or having survived something incredibly painful and damaging, that painful and damaging thing, that thing that breaks your heart is not a good thing. And that there's a fine line that I think can move us towards liberation when we reclaim what happened to us and are able to take even something from it that can shift how we choose to be in the world and and restore yes. a sense of agency and restore a sense of hope. And so as I think about like what we've been doing with the broken heart and then the power in this like you said, this prayer of like, please do this, you know, that, that part of moving from that broken heart into that other spirit where we are kind of restored and joyful and know what salvation feels like, that part of that is being able to take that little piece that we want to take with us forward. I'm like crawling out of my seat because I think that I want to look at verse six teach me wisdom in my secret heart. And I think that's part of the answer is the wisdom that we glean almost, tell me if this is right in your experience therapist, but one experience of trauma when you're reckoning with it after the fact is getting to a place where you're almost, you're letting go of blaming yourself you're, you're, you're almost like you, you have to let go of like the, the blame, shame piece. And it's like, this happened, you know, I'm experiencing this. I have compassion for myself in the way I responded then the impact it's had on me since. And like, and there's a part of it in reclaiming that agency of like, and I learned something really valuable about who I am, the strength that I carry, the ways in which I can rely on my community, whatever it is. That's the wisdom in your secret heart. As you read it around this like breaking heart, I think the secret heart's like down below. It's like the thing that, not, that the world can't touch. It's like the reserve where things go that can't be broken. That's, that's what's everlasting. And when you have that, you know, you're, you're able to do this journey in a way that's like, I'm not working from the place of brokenness where I'm spreading my shame around or I'm spreading my trauma around. Like, I think maybe that's what it means to kind of be a, a, a wounded healer in some ways of like, I've been wounded, but I'm healed down here. And that's where I, I, I work from. Amen. <laughs> yeah, that shift from, I think what I've seen is when we're able to shift from I am the trauma um, to, like you said, this is a thing that happened and it does not define me but I can incorporate it into my story and my understanding of myself in a way that even maybe 
in some bizarre little way can empower me moving forward. Um, Cause it's fighting the trauma that gets us no, it's fighting the broken heart that, that leads us in a, in a cycle of kind of, of denying what we've been through. Yeah. It's that place of acceptance and of like it happened. And I think that one of the pieces of that is not assuming God made it happen to you. I think there's a lot of theology out there that says God makes you suffer. God wants you to suffer. Then it's hard to redeem that suffering in some ways, because if it's from God, it must be good because God doesn't do bad things. There's a tough like spiral there. And I think what we're offering is we live in a world where things happen and to fight that broken heart because of it or blame God because of it or blame others can only take you so far. I see liberation in doing that deep and radical practice of facing what happened when we can, when we're ready and finding the secret wisdom or feeling like receiving the message of the secret wisdom. I don't think it's all uh, up to us. Um, And then kind of finding the liberation that comes from that. Yeah, hearing you, hearing you kind of lay out <laughs> how tricky what we're saying is, I, I find myself as we explore this constantly, kind of wanting to clarify. And but yeah, there is something part of the human condition, part of existing in this world is is to experience suffering. And kind of where I've gotten to is that that accepting that does not mean accepting that it's good or it's something that we have to be thankful for. I don't have to um, be thankful for pain and suffering, but I can be thankful that my heart can still break um, and that I can still learn from that and that I can try to find that deeper gut, secret heart thing that you're talking about, that the psalmist is talking about, that, that I don't want to close myself off to that because then I'm, I don't know what else I would be closing myself off to. There's something resistant in that and continuing to be vulnerable and com- continuing to be, be willing to be in the world um, and risk being in a relationship with other yeah. hurt human beings. Something I've never connected before until just now. In looking at resistance and liberation, to me, the bridge between those two is actually resilience that your heart is broken and it keeps beating. It keeps going. You don't always know how you're going to get to the next day or even next minute, but you do. And eventually you find a resilience in strengthening yourself. And that's liberation because even living existence is liberation for some folks. It's liberation because even existing as a trans woman of color in this world, I see so many folks who are inspiring community because they're just being themselves and you're inspiring others to be themselves. And I think that is the ultimate act of what if everyone had that freedom? I, to me, I think that's how oppression is no more. I think oppression comes from that place of shame, that place of needing to be better than needing to be richer than um, to prove something that you fear is ultimately true about yourself. Yeah. And thank you. (laughs) Resilience 
is the source of the wisdom, not the tra- trauma event. It's the resilience that is the wisdom in the secret heart. Is there anything else you want to add before we close? Are there any practices of resilience that you found personally helpful? If the folks are hearing this and wishing they had something that could strengthen their own. I'm thinking about Lent and entering into Lent as this reflective period that I think maybe has been overframed as turning ourselves into burnt offerings. Um, and it's, it's that feast famine uh, tension and that Lent is a, is a time of fasting. And I think what I'm just kind of trying to sit in is, okay, and the point of that is to come out not as a burnt offering, but as a more, as someone who's drawn closer to God and therefore is more connected to the world open to that secret wisdom is desiring to be a more expansive being, a less binary being. Yeah, Because for me, being connected to God is, is really being connected to the, the one, the thing, the spirit that connects us all. And so, so yeah, just thinking that as we enter into Lent, that broken heart isn't about turning ourselves into a burnt offering. It's actually preparing ourselves to be restored. I don't know that that's a practice, but that's kind of how my brain works. I'm not the best at practices. <laughs> I think um, maybe a better question, and I think one you've already answered, is what's something that we want to take with us from our conversation today um, is how I actually used to <laughs> close the podcast. Um, and what you're reminding me of that I want to take with me through this season of Lent is noticing the moments where I can feel myself closing my broken heart in a place of self-protection and asking myself the question, like, is that what is needed right now? Is that what will help me serve my community, serve myself, serve God? You know, in this scripture that we read is actually the lectionary text for Ash Wednesday, when we are reminded that we, well, we are not a burnt offering, but we, we, from ashes we came into ashes we shall return. And to me, the question for that is, what do you want to do while you're alive? Because death comes for us all. And do I want to live my whole life holding my broken heart away from everybody else? Or am I willing to sit in the mystery of what's possible when I open myself to experiencing others' brokenness? And I think the answer is, I'd like to at least notice when I'm trying to to self-protect or move backwards and see what comes from that experience. What wisdom can I glean there? Yes. And the, and the noticing, I think for me, the noticing, the distinction could be, am I protecting my heart out of wisdom that I've gained out of my resilience? Or am I protecting my heart out of trauma and fear? And, and is that a wise thing to do? Or is vulner, 
responsibility was called for. Am I with a safe person? And that's hard to know. And we mess up and we get it wrong. And that's part of how we get hurt. But to dr- at least to be present to that process that you're describing of what's going on here with, with my tender, my tender little heart. And is it, is it that I'm protecting it from incredibly wise, deep place within me that I've been gifted through my resilience? Or is it something else that I don't want to keep repeating? Mm. Mm-hmm. I, like. I think that we've, we've arrived to the end. So I want to thank you, John, for journeying with me in this text. I, always appreciate the kinds of conversations that come forward when we really get to be present and notice what's happening. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for, I always enjoy when our brains wander (laughs) together. We never know where it's going to go. Thank you for joining us for Liberation Bible Study. I hope you found something you want to carry forward into your work for liberation as a result of this conversation. We'd love to stay in touch with you. You can find further resources and connect with us at More Light Presbyterians through our website, mlp.org, on our Facebook page, or on Instagram and Twitter as at More Light Presby. As always, if you love this episode, share the love by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to Liberation Bible Study. Thanks, y'all. Bye.